The following program is a production of Lumpin' Radio, WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. More information at lumpinradio.com. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, 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 and welcome to this November edition of Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air, of course, is the show where we talk about left politics and architecture. Some and soccer t- games. And soccer games. <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, more of one, less of the other. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah, but, uh, you know, as, as is becoming the Buildings on Air tradition, we're, we we really are slowly slowly morphing in. The, eventually, our our beginning show banter about soccer and cycling is just going to take over, and it's going to be called cycling on air. It's just going to be cycling exactly. Cycling on air. I would love to do a Lumpen Radio Tour de France show. You but, know that. Uh, speaking that of which, uh, Raymond Poulier, the Eternal Second, just passed yeah, away. He was yeah. the number two guy in France for so many years. The last of the black and white heroes. That's right. Yes, 19, uh, he was eighty three. Yeah. So yes. So uh, R.I.P. to a real one. That's um, true. Oh, <laughs> to a genius. I, yes, to a genius. I'd, I'd pour my coffee out on the floor. Please don't do we've that. We've got carpets mm, in the studio for you know, you sound control and all that. Uh, anyway, we've got a great show lined up today. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a Buildings on Air-like classic. It's, a, it's meat and potatoes buildings. we got our two regular segments. we got uh, first up, Fun and Angry with Anjali Rao. And, of course, Fun and Angry is the, the our, our Buildings on Air regular segment where we talk about the discourse and uh some we we find an interesting article or two and uh kind of bat it around and see what's going on in in the discourse then uh we open up our mailbag uh that's of course the segment where we answer your listener questions about buildings uh you can still send those in folks uh buildings on air at gmail.com yeah especially especially your hvac questions but uh that's with ann louis and craig reschke a future firm they'll be in the studio with us in a little bit uh but right now fun and angry it's uh, fun and angry it's fun <laughs> and angry with Kiefer and julie yeah that's the stinger and uh anjali you're you're here with us how's it going hi Kiefer. uh i was about to i don't know i was waiting for an introduction but i was almost like i'm so bored now that they've talked about sports <laughs> <laughs> sorry let's sorry. take this off by yeah, right. putting me to sleep yeah this is this is usually also why we why we you know put in a buffer between the soccer talk and fun and angry with a, with a with a meaty interview or something like that um uh but um we've read two excellent articles and uh we'll post them up on the show twitter that's uh at BLDGS on air on Twitter. So you can read along. We've got the links there, folks. And uh, the two articles are uh, Hostile Architecture, How Public Spaces Keep the Public Out by Winnie Hugh. That appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, a week or two ago. Wasn't it the New York Times? Uh, was it? It was the New York Times. Was it? Oh, well, they're all the same. They're all the, they're all the, the, same. the bourgeois <laughs> The bourgeois press, as I call them. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, and then, uh, then we have at Cornell's Fine Arts Library, the book set the standard by uh, Audrey Walks in Metropolis, um, and so that's what we've got on deck. Uh, let's let's take them in turn. Uh, was it the New York Times? Is it that was the New York okay? Times. <laughs> uh, my apologies to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I guess okay, whatever. Um, 
Anyway, uh, no need to apologize. Yes, They're so fine. so uh, just what? So let's sum- summarize the article for us. Well, so I, yeah, I was really, um, you know, Kiefer and I have a nice text thread um, going about things that we are reading, and um, I think that uh, the reason why I pulled this sort of out is because it felt like a really good sort of intro explainer into um, two issues uh, in architecture, notably like two issues in public architecture, right? Like. Um, the idea of what a hostile hostile design looks mm-hmm. like, um, which uh, can be described as any sort of design or design feature that um, discourages uh, public lingering, right. <laughs> uh, which can that can include sitting, uh, yeah. chatting. Um, it can also include sleeping. So um, it tends, you know, sometimes takes the guise of like anti-homeless design, mm-hmm. um, anti-loitering, things like that. Yeah. So um, that as well as a good intro into um, POPS, P-O-P-S, which mm-hmm. is privately owned public space. Right. Um, so that usually means, um, correct me if I'm wrong, if you want to build a building, um, oftentimes there is a mandatory public space, inclu- space inclusion. And if it's not mandatory, it is encouraged with tax incentives. Right. Um, so you'd build a building and you would put a plaza um, and it would be public space, right? Anyone can hang out there, but it's privately operated and that can mean um, many things. Right. Um, it can usually be a good thing if it means that a the building owner then is responsible for collecting trash or maintaining yeah. the appearance of it. But it can also be a difficult thing because it means that uh, there's more of a policed presence. Yeah. Um, so usually private owners would want to hire a private security service to uh, shoo people away that are maybe quote unquote undesirable. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also mean that um, certain behaviors are policed as well. Right. And uh, it's interesting because we do have some pops in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, there 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 are a ton of them in New York um, and and there's an interesting code history here that you may or may not be aware no, of I'm not. yeah like so, so um, the early building codes were a lot about ensuring light uh, like adequate light to the street and also like airflow through the city on like a kind of big scale. And so they regulated the shape and the envelope of the buildings. And so this is why like in New York, you uh, you see lots of um, like layer cake sort of buildings, like that that kind of art deco style where the buildings get set back progressively mm-hmm. is, is, is uh, kind of that shape has been dictated by those light and air codes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that type of code construct Construct, um, fell out of fashion sort of slowly over the years and was replaced by uh, dense like density and bulk standards. Mm-hmm. So the codes for especially big buildings started to be governed by what we call in the biz FAR, which is floor area ratio. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically you have an area of a lot and it might have an FAR of 10. And that means that the size, the, like the actual floor area of the building can be 10 times the size of the lot and no more. Okay. So the POPs is is and, and, and it's it's a very common thing in these contemporary codes where developers will get FA because they always want a bigger building, right? More floor area equals more rent. And so they incentivize um, developers to kind of give back or like do something for the city by giving them FAR bonuses. So uh, POPs are usually, it's like if you give build a public plaza, you will be able to build your skyscraper like 
you know, 10 more stories high in the gotcha. air and get some rent. Um, so this is like a similar logic to in Chicago, we have the like neighborhood opportunity fund or whatever. So like developers can like write a check to this fund for like a million bucks or whatever mm-hmm. and, and go a little bit higher, which is, which is interesting. And so like, um, but it's also like, you know, this, there's, there's, there's a lot that could be said about that. I could go on for hours and hours, but it's, it's an, it's, that's why in the seventies in New York, you have a kind of explosion of these, of these pops in the seventies, eighties and, and kind of nineties. And mm-hmm. there's still lots of, every time you see a big old skyscraper that has a nice plaza, it's not because the uh, developer was just being altruistic. <laughs> they were getting something out of it. I yeah. would never, ever look at a building and say like, they probably did something nice because they felt like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They had some kind of moral imperative. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I think generally, like, it's a good thing for cities to have public space. <laughs> but it is a weird thing when you, you know, privately own public space is almost a contradiction in terms. Yeah, I think that there's a, a really fascinating um, presence that these spaces have in that um, they f- they feel really good. I mean, yeah. so in Chicago, for example, we have the Apple Store, the mm-hmm. new flagship store, um, which is essentially right on the river. And mm-hmm. so they actually put in this very large plaza um, and then some steps down to the river, which is like seating. Um, but, uh, you know, maintenance problems ab- abound and mm, right. um, they've been closed often. Um, to the public and then on top of that you sort of wonder like ultimately who who's allowed to kind of use this public space and oftentimes that sort of translates to like then who's allowed to use the river who's allowed to have access to the river Um, but what's really kind of wonderful about the article is that it just gives a pretty comprehensive explainer of like the different types of um, design that you'll see that is quote unquote hostile. Um, so the piece sort of kicks with this really nice like little photo montage of um, small things. So um, there are uh, bolts that sit on wooden benches that discourage people from skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a skateboarder, but there's that really cool trick that they do where they, like they sort of like kick their skateboard up and it like grinds on the edge of something <laughs> and then they land back yes. on the skateboard. Y- yes. Um, the the yes the grinding. The yes. Grinding. <laughs> is that the technical? The kids. Thing? The kids Kids are out there on their skateboards doing the grinding. Yeah, yeah. I played enough Tony Hawk Pro Skater oh, okay. as as a, yeah as a as a young uh, young young male growing up in the nineties uh, yeah. to know all about grinding. Yes. yes. Well, if, if that's the case, then certainly building owners are the uh, elderly curmudgeons telling people to literally get off their yes. lawn. Yes. Um, so you know, using these like little bolts, and sometimes they they look like. Uh, you know, L-shaped bolts that sort of sit on the corners. Sometimes it's just like one little piece of metal that um, is spaced like every, you know, foot and a half or so. Um, You know, it goes down to um, other sort of like unusually shaped pieces of metal that are attached to um, granite planters so that people aren't going to sit or lie Mm -hmm. down on them. Um, And what's really interesting that I really kind of liked about this this piece is that um, she, the author, incorporated uh, signage as mm-hmm. being a, a form of hostile architecture, mm-hmm. bringing yeah. up um, one specific private development that has this kind of gorgeous public plaza um, and offices, and uh, was interviewing some people who were outside, um, talking about the little tiny no loitering signs yeah. on benches. And one woman who uh, was a user of this public space, she was like, I work here, but 
I, it makes me kind of nervous because how long is loitering? Like how yeah, long right. do I need to stay here in order to be considerate loitering? Yeah. And I mean, even that itself, right, is like racially loaded. That yeah. like, I'm sure if she's like a white woman who's spending some time in a public plaza drinking her coffee right. and maybe reading a magazine um, for 45 minutes, uh, that's not considered loitering. But if you get, you know, some young folks or some, you know, people of color in there and they're hanging out, maybe talking or on right. their phones, that could be considered loitering. Yeah. So it's sort of like this ambiguous idea of what it means to actually spend time. Right. Um, and I don't think that language is consistently applied to people who use public spaces. No, it's not. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because you know, uh, uh, so much of this is subconscious until like it isn't right. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, you might notice a no loitering sign and sort of process all of that without actually, you know, being, being sort of clear <laughs> in your own brain. I mean, I want to, you know, um, I've had like one egregious experience myself with this sort of thing. Um, the, in in Chicago, we have the, the Mies van der Rohe Federal Plaza. Mm -hmm. It's a really wonderful space, and and um, I've had lots of like weird run-ins with security guards there. And, and it's it's an interesting one because it's it's like it's kind of a pop, but it's it's also like a publicly owned public space because yeah. it's owned by the federal government, yeah. right? But like uh, you know, the, the, they're they're they take their security very seriously, and I, I often take architecture students, my students, uh, to go on tours of that building. We we just kind of sit in the plaza and talk about it and everything and uh we've been hassled by security guards like a number of times which is insane and and one time there, there's there's a, actually a hidden plaza um on the state street side mm -hmm. of of the, one of the federal plaza buildings um so it's, it's tinier than like the kind of main plaza and they used to have these really lovely benches and this kind of like corny like <laughs> street lamps that like turned into like leaves it was like it was it was uh it was like i don't know who did it it was super cheesy but but I liked it. I like sitting there and reading in front of the Mies building, whatever. And I was reading I Claudius because I'm like a big nerd uh, about like that stuff. And I and and I used to sit there before work and, and have a nice time and read coffee and uh, drink read coffee, read, drink a coffee and read a book, right? And like, uh, but you know, I would sit there for like if I sat there for more than 20 minutes, this like a-hole security guard who you know would come out and he would stand two feet in front of me and just stare at me until I left and and eventually I just stopped going and it was like which I felt was really tragic because it's a beautiful space and if you go to that plaza now it's a, it's like a highly fortified entry like back entry to the federal plaza complex and so this is like a beautiful plaza that's been like erased from the city um, because of this kind of security theater right mm -hmm. and 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 um, you know, I don't know, like, I, I guess all of that is to say it's not like a woe is me sort of story because, you know, the, okay, like, I'm just a guy who's trying to read a book and, like, there's people who, you know, who use these spaces differently or kind of need these spaces to congregate and, like, uh, and, and who are worse off and who are, who are really affected by this. But, but this hostile architecture is really kind of a, the canary in the coal mine for, like, what, for, for like, how, how comfortable everyone is in urban environments and urban spaces. And we should have a right to the city. We should have a right to these things. For and sure. And I think that um, there's something that's very insidious about it, right? The idea that we um, sort of couch the development of 
private, privately owned public spaces, mm-hmm. COPS, um, in the idea that they will be better maintained. And um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that the a friend of the show, Catherine Darnstadt, yeah. um, would be happy happy to explain the politics surrounding Chicago's plazas. That mm-hmm. you know, there are public plazas around the city, but there are very specific neighborhoods in which there are none. Right. And um, I bet you can guess which ones those are. Yeah, right. And uh, I feel like you know, to create. Um, a privately owned public space, you sort of say like, don't worry, well, it will help us maintain trash. And, yeah. um, you know, we will keep our plazas shoveled in the wintertime. Like, oh, how glorious it is that you get <laughs> to like get to work without having yeah. to like shuffle your feet, you know, through snow and ice. And everyone's like in the first, that federal plaza is the slipperiest place in the city of Chicago. <laughs> it is so slippery. And but, you know, they salt and take care of it and whatnot. But, you know, the idea that private money is going to solve the problems and the challenges of public space, mm-hmm. um, in reality, I don't know. I think a lot about, uh, you know, my time um, in graduate school with Henny Reinders, who would, um, in his, like, kind of scary, deep voice, would mm-hmm. talk about, like, the architecture of control. Yes. And um, <laughs> the, like, what, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean? What does control really look like in public yeah. places? And I think that getting... Um, you know, this article sort of like skims that, like, just gets people thinking about the idea of how to control the public through design, right? Um, how to control, you know, what types of public behaviors are appropriate, um, and you know, just to think about like what are the ways that we can encourage design professionals to like think differently about how to encourage certain yeah. types of behaviors. Um, but you know, that would probably take collaboration with some kind of artist or arts yeah well shout out to uh the seattle chapter of the architecture lobby one of the things that they did when they were getting off the ground out there was they did a hostile architecture tour Mm -hmm. which for for like aimed at the public which was like a really amazing thing where it wasn't the kind of you know like historic important buildings that were on display it was like walking around and uh pointing out these things that are kind of hidden in plain site and and talking about the way that design is kind of used to prop up these structures which which was a really cool idea yeah i mean there's i i think that people sort of know like they know what they they know it when they see it yeah. you know they know it precisely what these things are for um a lot of us who you know as kids spent time in these places know precisely what it felt like when you know you'd see uh benches taken away yeah. like what does that look like um and you know, in I, just this week in Block Club Chicago, our local um, news outlet, uh, there were neighborhood complaints that um, the city had taken away a bench that this one homeless woman used to sleep on. Mm. And the neighbors were really angry because they're like, "She's she's always there. Yeah, right. We like her. There's she's not causing problems. Mm-hmm. But you took this bench away." And what that sort of revealed was that those benches are actually privately owned. Yeah. And I think that's a a, that's a huge news story to right. me. Like that, that is a, a big deal. That like our transit benches, like the things that you sit on and wait for buses at, are not owned by the transit authority. They're right. owned by a private company, and they yeah. can manage them however they feel. Yeah. Um, so that I think has huge implications on what it what it means to participate in public transit. Right. Um, but regardless, yeah. you know, like we all know exactly what it feels like and what it looks like. Yeah. So how do we start thinking differently about it or thinking more expansively about it? Right. Yeah. 
Part- and that's why we have the second article. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, and before you get to that, because I'm, I'm sure we have some like some of our dedicated listeners are probably also like talk about Occupy, talk about Occupy, because oh, yeah. because Occupy Wall Street. I mean, it it happened in Zuccotti Park, which was not a public park. It was one of these privately owned public spaces, and and that like stood in as a whole kind of metaphor for what the kind of demands were, right? Which is like, you know, even even our kind of public sphere and our everyday lives are now being sort of controlled by finance capital in some way. Usually it's kind of really, really, you know, it's these systems are kind of abstract, but uh, and, and floating above us and hard, it's hard to understand exactly how the mechanisms of control are working. But you have these very sort of real instantiations in privately owned public spaces. And, um, you know, I, and I and I think that that's something that will, will probably reemerge uh, at some point in this kind of new new wave of left resurgence that we're seeing. Uh, I mean, I'd hope so. Yeah. <laughs> did I did I ever tell you I, I was there? I was at Occupy in New York for like a week. Oh, no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, it was at a time in my life that I decided that I was going to move to New York City um, yeah. to like, yeah, it was a great idea. Jamie gives me a big thumbs up. Um, and uh, I was I had moved in with a friend of mine whose boyfriend had just gotten fired and he was mm. not thrilled that I was staying at their house despite the fact that they had invited me. And uh, he sort of asked me to leave and I had nowhere to go. And it was like September 10th. <laughs> and I had just like, I think it was, what was it, September 17th or so that Occupy started? Yeah. And I saw a Facebook invite for it and I literally, I like slept on the, um, on the L, which yeah. the L train is a different kind of train in Chicago, but the L, <laughs> which goes through Brooklyn. Uh, I like slept on the L for several days and then, um, you know, went to job interviews, um, but ended up at Zuccotti Park, yeah. um, you know, when it was still sort of in its infancy. Yeah. And it was, it was a really interesting spectacle because I felt like I didn't at that point, you know, I think I was like 20 for and I didn't fully understand the idea of what a private right. privately owned public space was um, but the fact is is like in the very beginning it wasn't it didn't feel like a radical move right to just like you know plant plant yourself in the middle of a park and right. and decide that you want to kind of point at something you yeah. know um, but there's a later on obviously as like it got more and more violent um, there were kind of uh, like opportunities, like civic opportunities for people to um, feel ownership over that space and the way that people cleaned up after themselves and the way mm-hmm. that people sort of um, decided to kind of share a space with each other. Right. Um, and that was really lovely and and something that I think can be replicated in smaller ways. You know, yeah, you don't right. necessarily need to, you know, live or quote unquote occupy a park in order to learn to like cohabitate together in these public spaces. Right. And, you know, in walking through Chicago where you do see a lot of these privately owned plazas, um, nobody even gives you the opportunity to do that. Yeah, right. Right. Well, and it, and it also strikes me that, you know, uh, beyond like sort of, uh, Com- sort of communitarian caretaking of, of the city, you know, in, in this kind of way that if, if we do make public spaces public again, that would be a huge step forward. But but part of the thing that would have to happen is to, you know, make sure that the public, right, the, you know, that, that, that the actual public identifies with being the public, right? And I, I know that's kind of like a weird abstract way of thinking about it. But a lot of times, like we, it's, I mean, I think the vast majority of people 
people do not perceive the government, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise, to be a fair representative of the kind of people in in some ways. And I think like uh, hope, hopefully that's something that will change in in the coming years. Well, like why yeah. do we have to trade? Like I mean, to me, the idea that like why is it that you know in you see people that want parks, right? Mm-hmm. You see people that want public space or green space. Um, and the idea is like, how do we convey a sense of ownership that sort of is ongoing and that is transferred from, you know, longtime residents to new residents? Yeah. Um, how do we create that? How do we foster that? Yeah. So that like when people demand these things, that they have a, kind of a deep understanding of what that you know, impl- implies for them, right. which it implies a requirement to take care of it. And, you know, I have it on good authority that like some of, well, actually all of the mega developments that are coming up in Chicago, um, there will be no public space. There will only yeah, be right. privately owned public space. And boo. yeah, super boo. boo. Um, and try, it's been very difficult to try to get the Department of Planning to get, <laughs> go on record about that. But um, I have it on good authority that that is the plan. And that's a very disturbing thought that there are, you know, dozens and dozens of acres of like quote unquote planned public space that is designed to kind of like quash the public outrage about mega developments. The idea that like, you know, in certain parts of cities Mm -hmm. that one developer is essentially creating a gated neighborhood um, that is only accessible or difficult, you know, to access by different types of people who don't necessarily live there. Um, So I don't know, like, the the lie that it's a lie it's a big lie that right. people are saying like don't worry there'll be parks it's like but these parks will not be owned by people and they right. will not feel a sense of responsibility right. for them yeah. when it gives me one of the things that gives me great hope is, is that people are not buying that bs anymore right yeah. and i mean like uh shout out the chicago teachers union right i mean they're talking about you know public school funding and making conditions better for 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 themselves and for the students and and everything else but but they really shined a light on on these mega developments that are happening in chicago the lincoln yards especially um and and the kind of sheer amount of money that's being directed towards that and i think i think there's a real consciousness in the city of chicago that um you know about who's benefiting from from those arrangements for sure and 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 that that feels that feels incredibly positive that that's by the way why the show is a couple of weeks late <laughs> because uh during the Chicago Teachers Union strike we uh my partner and I were were on the were on the picket line every morning at our local elementary school and it was very exhausting and rewarding but uh didn't have the energy or the time to 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 book the show yeah, <laughs> like I, I understand to get together that. a show. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I feel like there's a, a a very specific kind of sentiment that goes around. Yeah, being able to to move through the city and like the arguments against what you know, some folks w- had contacted me um, who work at architecture firms um, that might be designing Lincoln Yards, um, and they asked me like, well, why are the teachers picketing this? Like, the TIF dollars are for you know bike lanes and sidewalk improvements. But the question is, is like. Okay, that's fine, but well, it's not fine. But okay, that's right, that's, right, a, right. that's a fact. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's a, there's a fine line between things being fine and things being a fact. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, that's a fact. So with that in mind, like the question is, is that who will have access to those amenities? Right. Like it's not a question of like, oh, it's going toward public good. It's like yes, but 
who truly will have access if, if all the public space in these developments are going to be privately owned and policed by mm-hmm. privately private entities then the people who will be more feeling feel more welcome or more able to for example like ride their bikes on that bike lane mm-hmm. um, will be less likely to feel welcome there yeah. because they're technically like going to be a victim of that private policing in the same way like in um chicago when neighborhoods get together as like community meetings and decide to hire a private police force um to patrol their neighborhoods yeah it happens on uh in like west Mm -hmm. town i think was a recent one um the argument of like we should get a private police force and it's everyone on the you know little neighborhood blog or whatever they were like oh please don't because why because we have black people that live here and that makes a lot of people really nervous to have a private force that does not have any sort any public accountability at all yeah um you know patrolling an area right. so i don't know i think that like you're sort of setting up the neighborhood even though you can say there will be public amenities you're setting it up to be a very specific type of public amenity and realistically it's going to mean that like people aren't going to feel um a sense of ownership over that neighborhood you yes. know the city isn't going to embrace it like they do like they embrace things like field houses mm-hmm. where they embrace um park renovations mm-hmm. and things like that you're just you're not going to get the sense of public joy and love that like really is like civically unifying um mm-hmm. you know i don't know i maybe maybe not but my prediction is no Right. <laughs> well, on that note, we should move on to our second yes. piece, which, as you mentioned, is is related. Uh, at Cornell's new fine arts library, the book sets the standard. And this is, again, by Audrey Walks uh, in Metropolis. Yeah. Um, and I know I, I only know Audrey through Twitter. Yeah. Um, but um, I like I like, I like what she work. has to say yeah. on Twitter. And <laughs> I like reading, I like reading, reading her words. Um, and so uh, so tell us tell us summarize, summarize this piece for us. Yeah. So pretty much this piece walks through the new um, Cornell architecture edition, ad- mm-hmm. um, which includes a library and a makerspace. And um, in a, like a really like I like this piece because the way that the author sort of like brings up the building's hostile architecture is mm-hmm. done in such with like such grace. <laughs> if I had written this, I would have like just put a picture of me like trying to light the thing on fire. You know, like I'm <laughs> but you just, that doesn't sound <laughs> like you. Yeah. <laughs> just me with my middle finger in the air in front of Cornell. Yeah. Um putting yeah. the angry in front of the angry. Yeah. <laughs> really, uh-huh. truly. Uh yeah, no, there's um, the author sort of walks through the building in a way that discusses its design challenges and um, has the architect's response to what, you know, those challenges are, mm-hmm. like how they're, quote, unquote, perceived. Um, yeah, so uh, the building, um, and I'll have you sort of describe the floor plan because I don't have the visual knowledge that you sure. have. Um, but yeah, essentially the building um, is includes stacks, right? Which Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, um, stacks are where the books live um, on their shelves. Yeah, Yeah, but there's so many of them, or there's (laughs) stacks of books. Um, So, you know, they're the stacks and how people um, approach those stacks, um, how people are sort of encouraged to engage the library um, as a space for reading Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the relationship between people and books. Yeah, so... Uh, just to describe the building, um, which uh, I forget exactly what it's called, the, the name is. It is the Muiho uh, Fine Arts Library. And so it's right, uh, the arc, our, our, our audience of architects might know Milstein Hall, designed by 
Office of Metropolitan Architecture, um, OMA, Rem Kulas's firm. Uh, it's the kind of architecture school at Cornell, and so that's it's an attached building to that. And it's uh, it, it basically this library occupies the former or current Rand Hall, which is a kind of Beaux Arts nineteenth century, very stately sort of like stone and brick uh, building that's kind of been gutted. Um, to, and, and turned into an almost kind of quasi warehouse, and it has large steel girders that uh, now are you know the kind of roof structure, and the stacks hang from that roof structure, so they ultimately kind of end up four feet above the ground. So it's this kind of huge mass of books and shelves that is sort of floating in a very ethereal way mm-hmm. above the kind of concrete floor of, of the building. Um, and then and then the stacks themselves, are, so the shelves and everything, they're this kind of very lightweight, because everything's in tension. So in a fun architecture fact, when something's <laughs> in tension, it takes a lot less material to kind of uh, support it so everything is very thin and airy um, but it also has this transparent grating for the floors so which is kind of part of this less like ethereal hanging you know stack of books mm-hmm. in the middle of this warehouse this that you can kind of see through it um, but uh, as 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 discussed seeing through it has implications yeah so did, does it does this article I didn't see it um, tell you how you get up to the floating there is a small staircase that takes you up from the floor and then there's also a bridge from Milstein Hall great that sounds Mm -hmm. great yeah so um there are many problems with this um but so (laughs) tell us how you really feel (laughs) (laughs) um so what the thing that I sort of the reason why I came up across this piece is that Alexandra Lang had tweeted it out um saying that like Twitter Twitter uproar about this yeah yeah because there was kind of a moment where any person who has ever worn a skirt or a dress um, understands that uh, when you go upstairs, for example, or if you're on like an escalator, um, that there is kind of this annoying thing that horrible people like to do where they look up your mm-hmm. dress. And this is just like the like the perfect place to do it. I don't know. It's like a see-through floor yeah. that encourages one type of dress (laughs) that you can do so there's that component to it and that's that's one part the other part is that if you can only really access the stacks using a small staircase that that's a whole segment of the population who are unable to access it and that means you know people who might use wheelchairs Mm -hmm. people who may use canes people who have difficulty going up and down stairs. Um, this library is not accessible. It's just not accessible. Yeah. Um, and if that means that you need to go to a librarian and they need to retrieve books for you, how staffed are they for that? Um, how, how much integrity is yeah. there yeah. You know, in this building? Um, so realistically, I mean, to me, it just says like, yes, of course, an, an architect designed this this library for other architects because all of the architects are able-bodied and male. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and it's it is hard to tell from the images, like if if they do have you know uh, sort of adequately placed elevators and things like this. But but I I, I suspect not. Um, but uh, but yeah. I mean I I mean I think for me it's it's sort of the the, the question is when does a kind of interesting architecture interesting and challenging architectural concept become like go too far right because i think as 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 a 
as a person living in the world, like I think I do want not all of my architecture, but like, you know, like libraries, institutional buildings, these are like great places to do interesting architecture. And I think interesting architecture should be challenging in some way. And it can be challenging in lots of different ways. But it strikes me that this is not one of them, right? Like, and I mean, you know what I mean? Like that, that, that like it can be challenging aesthetically, challenging and, and challenging conceptually. And sometimes that might make people uncomfortable. Um, but like, you know, I think that like there's there's a real question about like if 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 it's making specific you know uh, groups in the population uncomfortable maybe you should you know do a gut check right uh maybe it should just be a kind of like gen generalized <laughs> like you know i don't know i'm trying to thread this weird needle here like you know about like you know maybe good architecture does make make you just uncomfortable but um if, it, if it's making you kind of fear for your safety or or or, or, or these sorts of things or, or um sort of uh, limiting use in, in this kind of way, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a huge and, and kind of unforgivable uh, flaw, I think. Oh, for sure. And like the way that um, the architect kind of goes to defend it mm -hmm. is ultra annoying, especially like um, when the author did ask him, well, do you understand that like this is yeah. potentially unfriendly to people who wear dresses? Um, he literally says, I encourage Cornell students to be respectful of each other. Right. And it's like really in the profession where like, you know, we just had a major fire about sexual assault and harassment yeah. in, in architecture firms. Like, I don't know what the expectations are in terms of like how college students are supposed to behave with each other. But we also know how college students behave with each other. Just understanding like the you know, unbelievable number of sexual assault and rape allegations that have come up in the last few years on right. campuses. So like, just like, just that response is so blind. It's, yeah. it's just, it's like a man puts his fingers in his ears and just shouts into the darkness, you know? Like that's <laughs> what this looks like. Um, yeah. On top of that, like this is sort of a minor detail, but you know, he says like, this library is all about the books, about, you know, the books are the stars of the yes. show and people are supposed to. There's like, a promotional video where they talked about the weightless world of knowledge and how the kind of hanging ethereal book stacks were a reflection of uh, they're taking these heavy books and and revealing them as part of the weightless world. Oh, of knowledge. It just makes me want to throw yeah. up. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, there's there is that thing, but there's this also funny component where. Um, people will have to remove their shoes. Have you been to Cornell? Have you been to Ithaca, New York in the wintertime? Yes. It's gross. I mean, it's beautiful because it's a <laughs> beautiful Just like anywhere, it's yeah. gross in the winter, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like exactly. snow, snow is only, you know, nice for so long yes. until it just turns to Black. Hor horrible, horrible gray sludge. <laughs> yeah. Just filled with trash. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Cornell is a beautiful and place in pee. the winter. Lots of yeah, dog pee. Lots of dog pee. Yeah. And you walk through it and it's muddy. Yeah. And so you're supposed to go into this building and and then walk on these on these graded floors that overhang other books. And the architect, when asked about yeah. it, he's like, "Well, of course, I would expect that people would would clean their muddied shoes." Right. Or something. It's like, well, how do you have like a shoe washing yeah. machine? Like, are, do are people expected to bring a secondary pair of shoes? Truly, if you were respecting the books, you were thinking about how to protect those books. Sure, and I, I mean, I think also, uh, you know, the, there's a concern also about like the maintenance of this and like how nice it's going to be for people to clean it like right yeah. like the maintenance staff and all of this right i mean i think that that's a super important consideration i mean i i, I don't know it's it's always interesting when when i read about things like this because 
I think there's there's a lot of times in the reaction to articles like this, there's this kind of thing about like how could you be so naive and dumb to like not consider like the real world, and and there's this kind of like and and it's a reaction that I, I understand. There's there's a kind of like tyranny of the real world in 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 the way that we can approach like failings like this that I that I really d- like dislike. Um, because I think architecture at its best, like, is transcendent. But like, and I and I think that that's like the interesting conversation here to be had is like, um, you know, like that that you can make architecture that is transcendent in 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 all of these ways that that is not like aggressive aggressive <laughs> aggressively hostile exactly. to, to users yeah. right and and that those things don't they don't have to you know because uh, I, I mean I think in 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 and, and I, I really would like there to be a more expanded conversation about this, like conceptually in the field, because we really bake it into students, architecture students. When you go to architecture school, it's like one of the first things. It's like, oh, well, you know, like ramps, they take up so much space. And it's like, oh, like it's annoying. Like all of the like the like the codes and regulations that we have to kind of keep people honest are like treated as this like horribly annoying, burdensome thing. Right. Or like, you know, every every year it's like, um, I, you know, there's some someone does a project with a glass floor, and like you know, it's like, oh well, have you ever been on a glass floor? Like blah blah blah, and it's and, and like there's there's just like not a lot of like I, I, there's not a lot of acceptance around the idea that you can have your cake and eat it too with like having enriching architecture that like is not is not going to be aggressive towards certain groups of people. Like and 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 I and I don't know why that is. Right? It yeah. doesn't seem that hard. Well, you know, it's really interesting, too, because um, Cornell, so Cornell's campus, it's not, it's a private campus, but it's also publicly owned. Mm. So there's like a public component to to its ownership. And then you look at, um, you look at a place like uh, the Queens Public Library Mm -hmm. that just opened, Stephen Hall did it, um, which itself has its own problems. I mean, they, um, similar idea, they created some book stacks um, for, I think, fiction, uh, the fiction section where uh, these book stacks that you access on steps. So yeah. they're like sort of like a grand staircase with built-in bookshelves mm-hmm. on them. So those are not accessible either. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not, they only included one elevator that isn't large enough to accommodate a stroller. So there are these kind of little moments that happen there too, right? Where right. like um, Stephen Hall, I guess, responded to the critique of inaccessibility and he calls it a wrinkle, I think was the word he used. It was a wrinkle. Yeah. Um, is, the, these things are not wrinkles. Yeah. yeah they're, but, they're important. And yeah. it's, but, you know, like Michael yeah. Kimmelman for the New York Times, again, who cares about the New York Times? <laughs> Michael Kimmelman for the New York Times, like, just praised the library and yeah. I guess he just sort of overlooked this, like, accessibility component Um, but you know the librarians had to do all this work then to remove those books from those shelves and put them into a place where it is accessible so now they just have some empty shelves yeah Um, I mean I I feel like we're allowed to appreciate something aesthetically but also understand that it exists in direct conflict with the livelihoods of other people yeah exactly Um, and so I think that to bake that into architecture students for sure but um there needs to be some kind of conversation that takes place between architects and other people and that's what i feel like has has been lacking is that there's a complete like did the architects when putting together this cornell library see female students wearing clothing that you know 
might not yeah. be accommodated by this building? Did they... I mean, I just I can't even imagine the lack of conversations yeah. that took place. Let's, I mean, I think I think it also goes back to like the kind of tyranny of like the the one liner concept, right? Like this this <laughs> this in architecture is is the kind of our dominant paradigm that you have a kind of diagram or like something, but you end up with a kind of like one liner concept because that's what makes a building marketable. You can kind of sell it to clients. You can do something interesting with it, and uh, and oftentimes in that kind of in that kind of once you get into that mode, you're kind of on rail road tracks where you can't it, it, it becomes really hard to like you know fold other things into it and kind of take into account the richness of everyday life um, sure. and i and i think i think for me that that's something that, uh, that's kind of paradigmatic of contemporary architecture that that is that is also at play here for sure and well, you know yeah oh. we gotta we gotta wrap up soon but uh, yeah i'm curious any any i guess my last yeah, thought on it is just that like if we're making buildings for people understanding that people are not perfect and i yeah. think that making buildings for books that was the worst way to begin a project <laughs> right you're not this isn't a storage locker for books this isn't a preservation archive for books you know that needs yeah. to like lock out light to make sure the pages are preserved what this is is a a building for people whether or not the architect agrees with me it's a building for people mm -hmm. and people are not quote unquote perfect and I feel like not to say that like people who wear skirts and dresses are imperfect people or people who need to use a wheelchair or a cane are imperfect people but understanding that in variety uh we, you know, encounter the types of bumps that architects don't seem to want to acknowledge because yeah. they're making buildings for books and not for people yeah well, that's a good place to wrap up fun and angry. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with the Buildings on Air mailbag. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Yes, it's time for the Buildings on Air mailbag. And of course, the mailbag is our regular segment where we answer your listener questions about buildings, architecture, with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. Anne, Craig, how's it going? Good. How's it going with you? It's going great. I, I feel like, so uh, we work in the same office space, <laughs> and uh, Craig, I've seen you a little bit uh, this uh. semester, <laughs> but, but Anne, you've been, you've been teaching in a distant place and on opposite days from me, mm. so we've, we've, been, we've been constantly passing each other I know. on off days in the office, so I feel like I haven't seen you in months. We should leave each other secret notes in the <laughs> office that we um, read when the other person is uh -huh. Yeah, so so you know, uh, I think instead we've left a puddle on your desk where the ceiling is leaking. Yes, that that's the, maybe hey, the my landlord. The landlord fixed that. They, the landlord did fix that, and that's maybe my first question: Is do you know what was causing the leak in the ceiling above my desk? Uh, <laughs> we do. It's an HVAC issue. I see. The, oh wow! Um, Imagine that. Yeah. It's <laughs> the piping from the uh, AC unit in the unit upstairs, and it was condensate on it that was dripping down through the wall yes. and onto our ceiling that makes lots of sense yeah yeah it was it was it was not a big it did not disrupt my flow at all mm. yes the, the people that work for our landlord tried to say just wait until winter when they shut off the ac <laughs> and then it'll stop <laughs> and i wrote back to the landlord and said uh this is not a solution you need to actually you're right <laughs> yes well i i appreciate it my desk is dry 
<laughs> and that's the preferred state of desks, mm. as you know. The, yeah. <laughs> the most surprising thing about the whole whole issue is that they were able to match the blue paint that is on the ceiling of yeah. our office. Did I? Here's another question that I have. <laughs> uh, did you pick that blue paint in the office? No. Did, no. <laughs> have you seen Craig or I choose color for literally anything? Yeah, you, the future firm <laughs> color palette, palette is black, white, or silver, generally and speaking. We'll make an exception for like iridescent, you know, once in a while. <laughs> uh, no, the office used to be uh, belonging to a painter, and the ceiling was sky blue and the walls were blood red. Wow. Um, so you can still see in areas where the paint job is a little squirrely, the yeah. kind of matches the red. I'm looking at Jamie, I'm wondering if he remembers oh, when yeah, the, the studio was red and there were hooks mm-hmm. in the floor and, you know, yeah. TBD, what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things we negotiated when we moved in. We said, you have to paint that space white. And then we, we didn't, didn't say think that we had, to, <laughs> we didn't think we had to specify the ceiling and then they left the, the ceiling. There's something very peculiar about having a sky blue ceiling, though, uh, mm. like in an interior space. Mm. I don't, you should very... paint some little fluffy clouds on yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> Get Bob yeah. Ross in there, paint a happy little cloud. Mm-hmm. Maybe some happy little trees. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be just like Italian village downtown. Yeah, right. Yeah. You can have <laughs> a bowl of pasta. You guys would like that. Don't tell me that wouldn't make you happy. We like Italian village. This yeah. is really embarrassing to admit. No, it's it's great. They have uh, the, the downstairs bar. Jordan Messer. Yeah. And um, they've got, uh, it's like one of the old school Chicago bars that serves, you know, bar pizza mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. free during happy hours. That's right. Tavern style. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. Um, what? Okay. What question am I going to ask? <laughs> I was going to say, we could just relocate this show to Italian Village yeah, right. all the time. <laughs> or I was going to say, we could just keep chatting and see how long we can go before we actually answer ask a question. question. Uh, I mean, I have I have lots of questions here today. Um, oh, the mailbag's overfloweth. The mailbag overfloweth. <laughs> and, um, and, I'm, and I'm not sure which question to ask first. Uh, perhaps I'll start with the question on the top of my page. Is it possible for skyscrapers to fall over and create a domino-style collapse of other buildings? Mm. Do you want to talk about the San Francisco building? And, which did not produce a domino-style <laughs> collapse, but is on the verge of tipping over. Millennium Tower in San Francisco We've is... We've talked about Millennium Tower before. Tower on the show. Wow. Yeah, mm. but let's, let's, no, no, no. Roll, let's roll it again. Wait, yeah. the three really? of us have talked about I'm, it? I'm fairly certain. No. But I, I need have, to keep we, a wall. We, we only have three architectural <laughs> yeah. anyway, references. For the, for Our the, office, Millennium Tower, and Italian Village. Yeah, That's the, it. The, yeah. <laughs> it's a very limited <laughs> The buildings on our holy trinity, as yeah. I call it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no other buildings of significance mm. register. Right. Uh, but you go. I, it was it was years ago. So so we're we're in the clear. So, Millennium Tower in San Francisco. Uh, one side of it is sinking because the piles are not deep enough, which is mm. the foundation that goes down into the ground. Uh, if there's not bedrock for you to build your skyscraper on top of, you put in uh, friction piles, which mm-hmm. uh, have to go down very deep. Um, and it's a huge uh, lawsuit and construction issue to figure out how to fix it. Um, but it's tipping very slowly, and yeah. they will fix it before anything catastrophic happens. Um, I don't know. We I hope. Don't, we hope. Or Godzilla. Because <laughs> Godzilla could take that thing down right now. <laughs> or or just the big one. You yeah. Know. Uh, the, uh, My money's on Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> I think that any skyscraper, as soon as it starts to tip, all of the, uh, all of the columns are out of plane. Right. And lose a lot of their structural strength, so I think that the 
the whereas the domino actually has uh a rigidity to it as it tips over. I think yeah. it's a skyscraper tips. It loses a lot of that. I'm sure it could crush smaller buildings. I'm not sure about a yeah. domino effect. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, because, I, I mean, basically, you can you can put a surprising amount of weight on a column as long as it is appropriately braced, right? Because, right. The, because it's going straight down to the ground, even if it's going hundreds and hundreds of feet, as long as, you know, there's floors that are attached to shear walls and other columns and things like that, keeping it nice and sturdy, then you're all good. But the second... Craig's the second it goes out of plane, then it's a different kind of force on the column. It's a bending force, so the column snaps in half, and then all of a sudden that now detached floor is going straight down per gravity. Right. <laughs> Put your finger yeah. on top of a pen on the desk, yeah. and if you push directly down on it, the pen stays stable. But if you move off axis a little bit, the pen yeah. slips. Yeah, and, and so this is why like buildings, I mean, I don't, I don't know, like people ask this kind of question like conspiratorial ways all the time, right? Mm. I mean, like the, the, it's like one of the 9-11 things. Like why, mm. did, why didn't it fall <laughs> sideways? It looks like a controlled demolition. <laughs> and mm. the answer is, well, that's how buildings fall because mm. they're made of columns. Mm. I mean, I, I have seen like some amazing pictures online of like mid-rise buildings <laughs> and, that are like concrete concrete like all the way around right like they're they're, they're like kind ones of exterior. in china that have fallen yeah over? and and those no. do stay rigid as they tip over mm-hmm. but there's a kind of like practical limit to like how tall you build those sorts of like maybe um the only building that wait the george dunn uh, which incidentally is my father's name uh <laughs> spelled different but like, there's the the george dunn uh cook county building um which is the one it's kind of a concrete frame uh, right across from the Picasso in Chicago, the oh. Chicago mm. downtown loop, an SOM building. Uh, yes, the um, yellow one. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and and that is that is like a giant concrete cage. Um, yeah. is that nice the, the George Dunn that it's named after is that no relation to this, that is not my father just to be clear uh, just the same name but but that one that one might tip over like that because it's a kind of rigid tube um, which is the structural idea of that building but then I think tube, yeah. all the buildings that it would have to be lined up against would also have to have tipping points at their base right <laughs> depending on like yes. how it lands to get a, down, think, to get a to, downtown to Chicago get, yeah, to get a downtown Chicago <laughs> domino which <laughs> like they don't right no. So it's like even if you have one, how it impacts. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like this would actually be an incredibly interesting question, like for Bill Baker. <laughs> That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the more you know. Um, yes. You, it, but but hopefully this is of some comfort if you are working in a building in the loop. That uh, if if <laughs> something if something happens. Uh, the, that the whole the whole of downtown Chicago is not going to, in domino fashion, um, just evaporate. No, it doesn't. So if you are working yeah. in the loop and the building next to you, you see it tipping towards you. Yeah, you should get, probably move to <laughs> yeah, the other right, side of the building. Right, 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 right. If you yeah. see the building falling towards you. Don't try to ride it out. <laughs> do not call buildings on air. Yeah, right. Yeah, do don't, not, do don't send that question to the mailbag. Don't yeah. text or email us. Just yeah. move out of the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I, we've talked about adding, uh, like disclaimers to this this show. <laughs> yes. That that Legal seems like that seems like a weird one. That's the only thing we've disclaimed so far. Mm-hmm. Don't if 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 in case of grievous emergency building right. emergency, don't wait for an answer. <laughs> right, right. Um, what's the, what's but, the movie that was filmed in Chicago where the crane kind of like takes out a corner of the building and then he leaps out the hole that the crane made because he was like in custody <laughs> and lands on top of the L. It's uh, it's called I something. 
<laughs> it's not called. It's called I something. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. There was the recent Dwayne the Rock Johnson film, Skyscraper, say, which we should review for, for a mailbag, I think. There's I, Robot, but that is filmed in Vancouver. No, this has the guy in it who is also in uh, Sia uh, uh, music videos. The, oh, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. <laughs> the person oh, who's in Transformers C- you're talking about. No, it's not Transformers. It's... Uh, <laughs> Which was partially it's, filmed in Buffalo while we're talking about the thing, a spontaneous demolition. The thing, that I, the thing that I love about radio is yeah. someone who's listening to this knows right now and is knows dying. the answer and is screaming at their radio. And whoever you us. are, we're sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, they're involved in a serious building emergency and we just told them not to email us. <laughs> yeah, right. So they're, they're really torn right yeah. now between yeah. their desire to tweet at us and their desire to get out of the way of God's <laughs> Uh, anyway. Next question. Um, how do I tell the age of a building in the U.S.? Look it up on the Cook County Assessor's Office. Like if in you're the in Chicago. U.S.? Okay. okay. <laughs> Craig, Craig <laughs> coming with the correct answer that is not the right answer. That is so correct for the two people sitting here and no one else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean – there, there are that, but he's right. Actually, yeah, in yeah, every yeah. county, there is a, a building log record. Just look it up. It's I, not that hard. I mean, I, I maybe this person is looking for that specific of an information. But the way that I understood this question, <laughs> me, me reading into it is this is a person who's who's walking around their city. They're curious and mm. they want to be able to tell how old is that building mm. uh, based Get out on your just iPhone and go to the assessor's <laughs> website and type in the address. <laughs> I think. I think it took all of us like some time to get a sense of what kinds of buildings yeah. were built when in the United States. And if I go out of the country, that knowledge is virtually decimated. I mean, like, I think yeah. I can have a rough sense of building technology, but like also before the 20th century, like my yeah, knowledge knows. is like, pretty, pretty lame. Yeah. Um, it, it is look, easier if, if to the tell building the is made yeah. out of hay, okay, it's not modern. It was piglet Wait. number one. Yeah. If it was made out of bricks, it was little pig number two. two. Right. This it's is obvious stuff. Straw bale construction is like the newest. It's really hip. Yeah. yeah. So it could, could be either really old or really new. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's if it like, resembles a yurt. <laughs> yeah, right. No, yurts are back. See, that's what I just said, you know. If it's mud bricks, if it's made out of stick, be. check your calendar. Make sure it's not suck it. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, you know, okay. If it's made out of logs, it could be a genie gang building. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Bundle twigs could be an avant-garde project by Scape, or it could be a very, very old building. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is harder. To, I mean, I think one of it is there is a question of scale here, hmm. which is a lot of these like it, like low like medium rise, large footprint buildings. That's like a pretty recent phenomena. Medium rise. Large footprint, like a like, tilt-up Best Buy. No, yeah, like a or even even like a genie, like a like a like these institutional buildings that kind mm-hmm. of like uh, get put up, like like the Harold Washington Library, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. uh, buildings of that sort of scale and vibe. What or about the, like uh, the JGMA <laughs> School? Oh, you know, I'm thinking up, up on the north side. The oh, in the United States. States. Yes, in the mm-hmm. United States. Okay. But I mean, I think I think uh, like that's a tell for me. But I, I mean, I think generally you can get yourself like a hand, like they they make these like coffee table books of like oh my god red- Kiefer what? please don't tell listeners to carry around a coffee table <laughs> yeah, size book when you have this thing <laughs> in your pocket called an iPhone 
iPhone. <laughs> I, I'm you sorry. are sitting with an iPhone on the table in front of you, and you are trying to tell the gentle <laughs> listeners of Lumpen Radio, you know there's a coffee table book that you can probably carry around with you in your car, maybe, or on the back of your bicycle while you are walking around. That's a great... That's no, that the kind of no. help that Buildings on Air can only give Lumpen listeners. Thank you, Jesus. You're welcome. No, Jamie, look, knowledge, as we discussed, is a, is a, is a weightless and timeless thing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the idea is not that you carry the book around, but that you read it, and then and then you and, and then as you're walking around, you remember the is things that, that you read. Is that what books are for? I thought the whole point of a coffee table book was that you don't read it, and it simply sits on your coffee I table. Know, or but, you make a coffee table. <laughs> right, right. Craig anyway. has been walking around, actually, at the neighborhood, and perhaps two of you have seen him do this with a tree identification book. So he will look at trees and use the tree identification book to go oh, through this like I, series of... Are you that's getting- what that is? It's- <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was porn. <laughs> and he's just standing by yeah, the, you're just standing coffee, in front of the looking- walnuts or whatever yeah. out here. I actually just kind of gazing into the distance. I, I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> While lovingly assessing yeah. the leaflets. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't also know that Buildings on Air is becoming a show where we roast people who read books. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Says the guy that runs the book show on Open Radio. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was that going to... very s- peaceful, though. Yeah, it does look... That seems very peaceful. It's and, a very nice thing to do on a Saturday. Yeah, and I was going to also say a very... Rec- recount a very sweet memory, Jamie, of uh, my, my mother had these coffee table books uh, of like residential American mm. building styles mm. and I would look through these books very fondly and it is one mm. of the things that ignited my interest in architecture but Aww. now I can also tell That's you when th- thank you <laughs> and now I can tell I can tell when a building has been constructed based on the architectural style uh, but but so mm. I, I just I don't mm. think that telling this poor avid listener who <laughs> right now maybe in the book. midst of a building emergency knows the name of the film that we don't that to go get a coffee table book when he has the Cook County Assessor's Office website yeah, handy yeah. to him on his iPhone. Yeah, make your own coffee table book out of printouts from the Cook Coffee Cook, <laughs> Cook, coffee, Cook County uh, Assessor's printouts. Yeah. A good general way to understand might be yeah. to understand the age of the city that you're in. Yeah. So if you are walking around Boston and you are looking at Historic buildings, it is likely that many of them were built around yes. uh, uh, the, <laughs> the early 1800s. Yeah. Chicago's building stock, everything that we see out here, the the kind of brick two flats, was built for the most part in the early 1900s. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. Bridgeport's a little older. 1890s to 1910s, yeah. 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 And sometimes the buildings in Bridgeport even say that on them because yeah. depending on when they were built, they marked them on the top. Yeah. 1893, or they even marked who built them. So, yeah. Are we going to do that when we build our house, or are we going to put a year on top? Oh. I mean, sorry, I don't know why I was so scornful <laughs> about that for no yeah, reason. That's interesting. If you would like to, right. you can. Anne was just going to put a big portrait of herself <laughs> on top of the building, mm-hmm. in stone. Like the Forbidden City, though, yes, like exactly. very severe and painted. Yeah, <laughs> very, very severe. Yeah. Uh, next <laughs> question. My store has been smelly recently, <laughs> and I've... <laughs> And I've had to apologize to customers. It's, it smells like a sewer. Could this mm. be a burst sewer pipe? It's probably the sewer gas coming back up through their plumbing, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pour water into the floor drains because the floor drains, usually the water evaporates out of the trap and then sewer gas can come up. It could be a burst sewer pipe in the basement. 
Um, but, you know, usually if it smells like sewer, it's because there's some sewer access in the building somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That, that's a good idea, though. It, it is if the water trap breaks, then the, the way most modern drains are built is the water actually separates what you're putting into the sewer from what's coming back from the sewer. And sewer mm-hmm. gas can go up that. So if you do flush your drains out. Um, this is actually good to know in Bridgeport, which has gravity wells and back wells. If you don't keep those wells filled with water, mm-hmm. you will get backlog and you will uh, get sewer gas and you get flooding. So yeah. it's the same sort of principle with those catch basins. Yeah. That being said, once in our office, the three of us plus others were wondering about an odd smell and a growing population of flies for nearly two oh, weeks. God. And it turned out it was a muskrat. It was like a dead small mammal in the basement. Small, medium sized, at least. Yeah, small. Like I would not say a large rodent. I would say a small. I'd say a small mammal that had become large. (laughs) The man who carried it out carried out in a bag with two hands, like over his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. over his shoulder. Yeah, Yeah, it was not a one hand hand removal process. Gotcha. So So that's also something. (laughs) If your store is smelly, look maybe for dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, could even be dead mice or something. Yeah, could be. Or you're a smelly person and no <laughs> one's had the heart to tell you. <laughs> yes, that also could be the possibility. Yeah, <laughs> have you asked? Is it you? <laughs> <laughs> is it the store? Or is it you? Yes. Yeah. Just before we move on to the next uh-huh. question, so you all know the name of the movie is Eagle Eye. Oh, I remember that movie. Did somebody, it was not did somebody tweet good. that at you? No. Uh, he used I, a coffee table I, book in his pocket. Oh. <laughs> 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 Movies that Craig forgot that he um, Do you know of any famous or important buildings that have secret parts? Hmm. Someone's trying to get at our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> like would it, like secret rooms or what do you mean? I don't I, I assume it means secret rooms. Um I do, I don't know of any other, otherwise they wouldn't be secret anymore I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean uh, even St. Mary's has priest holes in it. Oh, what is a priest, priest hole? So a priest hole is a um they used to do it in like Victorian buildings and it's quite common in England. Um it's a hidden door that's behind like a wooden panel mm-hmm. and it was for the priest to have quick access to other parts of the church but it wasn't open to the public and it was mm-hmm. called a, a priest hole yeah that's basically what Interesting. It is. so they would connect places and you um they would use it for storage or uh they'd hide things in there but also it was mm-hmm. it dated back if i remember correctly to um in some of the very old churches because they were sanctuaries it was where they could hide people from um people trying to kill them, I guess, you know, if there was a political turn of bad events and you were hiding out at, say, in the CUV and mm. priest shoved you in this little hole, no, he's not here, you know. Joan of Arc's not here. We've never seen her, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's fairly common, actually, and I know St. Mary's has them. I guess I was going to say I've, like, just through my students started learning a lot about the Underground Railroad in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So because many of the fugitive slaves were escaping to Canada through mm-hmm. um, western New York, there were a lot of churches that actually served as spaces for hiding fugitive slaves. But, like, the, the secret quality of that building was, like, secret constructed through the people who acted as, like, right. uh, 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 who, like, for example, like – they would hide in the basement mm. while events would happen on the first floor, which would like right. provide a kind of like concealing approach. So I don't know, like, I, I think it is like a spatial practice, but maybe it's not an architectural practice. But uh, yeah, there's like some really interesting landscapes in Western New York. Yeah, there are. Because of the Underground Railroad. Well, I mean, also here in Bridgeport, I mean, the fact that the streets are raised, um, 
and I think we've discussed this, maybe yeah. not in this show. I know we've discussed it on Radio Free, but so many of the streets are hollow, including the Morgan Street right in front of us. Mm. It is a hollow, vaulted street. People used to use that up until the 50s or 60s as wine cellars. Uh, mm. They were smuggling tunnels, bringing stuff down from um, Al Capone's place up to the Green Mill. There was a whole mm. series of passageways mm -hmm. that, that basically went from the south side all the way up. Um, and some of these were used in houses in Bridgeport. Like when I bought my house, we had to brick over a part in our basement because um, we bought it from the family of the original owner who had, who had built it, I guess, in what, 1917 or whatever. And they had a reveal and a doorway into the vaulted street on Bonfield. Hmm. Oh, wow. The and original it, Pedway, as it were. Well, yes. <laughs> and there is, in fact, on Bonfield, if, you're, if you are local, you can go down Bonfield past the park, Bosley Park, if uh -huh. you're looking toward Archer. Uh -huh. uh, as you get to Bonfield and Lyman, if you look left before the building on the um, uh, west, I guess it would be the northwest corner of the red building, there's a door that actually goes in underneath the uh, staircase. Oh, like past Nick and Emily's house. Yes, right. Past the park. Correct. So it's left. right, it's that right uh, where Nick and Emily live. Um, this is so local. <laughs> yeah, right. Hyper local. Nick and Elma, Emily, who are mailbag riggers when you guys yes. aren't here. Let's tell everyone it's, where they live. It's basically, <laughs> they live down the street from me. It's, it's, uh, it's on that house with the steps. No, um, basically almost right across from them. If yeah. you go into that little park, and you're looking at the back garden of the large red mm -hmm. brick house, and you look down, you will see a door that goes into the street. I know exactly oh. where you mean. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. interesting. So there, there are hidden spaces. I mean, you know, I don't know if necessarily there are famous buildings, but a lot of buildings have, I mean, even Soldier Field has spaces that are not open to the public mm -hmm. and are only known by people that either built it or, or work there regularly because they were put in to allow access from point to point without other people knowing about it. I mean, for example, and it's is very common in a sports stadium, there are always ways to get your players, your home team players, out of the locker room without having to go in front of anybody at all. Yeah, There's always a, a secret back door out. Yeah. And it's usually through the showers. Mm. <laughs> you know, no, seriously. like there, There's always a way that you, you get people out so they don't have to face the media. I was and that's say, very common. The last thing I was thinking was like uh, like MIT undergrads have this ha this like tradition of like hacking hacking buildings, right? So like they're always trying to like there's competitions to do these kind of elaborate engineering pranks, but hacking also means to like break into spaces or find their way into spaces that are not open to the public. Like I don't know if they're secret or not, but like you can find access into kind yeah. of like under some spaces under the main campus that like people have hung out mm -hmm. in or or like um, like tagged up as proof that they got there or into the dome. So like yeah, secret secret is all relative about what you right. have access to. Yeah, right? Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, next question: uh, How do high rises get water pressure on the top floors? Oh, we find this question very interesting. You should talk about it. <laughs> do we find it? I didn't know we found it that interesting. Uh, <laughs> because do you, about the wa water that was shooting out the side of that building? <laughs> they pump water up to the top, and there's a giant tank. So every high-rise has basically its own water tower. Yeah. So instead of using city water pressure, they use their own water pressure. This is funny because recently in <laughs> Philadelphia, they were, like, testing the uh, – pressure on some sprinklers in a building or something and they did a water release uh -huh. but it basically like looked like this building in philadelphia was like throwing up on the building <laughs> next to it because <laughs> uh, it was like this huge water jet shooting out the side and it was on twitter and it was very funny hmm. yeah. and we were wondering if it was like if that was the reason because otherwise you wouldn't have enough water pressure for this building to like spew right. <laughs> like <laughs> 20 feet onto the adjacent building yeah all right that's yeah 
question asked and answered. Uh, let's see. What is – oh, this is also so – we're getting real Bridgeport specific. <laughs> but but um, what what is the most common cause of a building falling during construction? We also have lots of like building falling questions. Mm. This time. Yeah, but, a lot of anxiety. But there, there, this yeah, month. right. But there, there, <laughs> there was one, yeah. there was there was a building collapse in the neighborhood, uh, a building under construction not that long ago. Just About to, six weeks, yeah, right? Thirty second, seven seven. As an architect, yeah. I cannot comment on the means or methods of. Construction. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the building collapse on? 30 right over, second? right around thirty second, right over here. Yeah. On Morgan. On no, Aberdeen well, thirty second Aberdeen. Yeah. Ish. It what were a, they building? Um, they they were retrofitting a building. They were right? retrofitting a building. It was like a wood frame building, right? And they had kind of gutted it out, and it didn't have a roof on yet. There's like some tarps and some walls. They and someone caught it on their like, you know, uh, like front door yeah. camera yeah, across the street. Yeah. yeah, and um and and it was kind of a windy day. And the whole thing just tilted over, like uh, you know. Uh, oh, because the roof diaphragm wasn't holding it there, side to there side. There was no roof. Yeah. There was yeah. no roof, and it, it and so it, to me, it looked like um, they basically, when they gutted the interior walls, they surmised that they were not structural, but some of them were probably acting in shear. Mm. against a kind of wind load. So that's a real technical talk, which maybe we can explain. But but basically, you know, wood framing, uh, I mean, I don't know, if you think of, if, if you think about like how wood stud walls work, it's kind of, it's not that dissimilar. But you can imagine how if you just like took, okay, this is a weird example, like dots, the candy dots, <laughs> like gummies, and like you put toothpicks and you made a square out of it, it would still be really wiggly. Um, but uh, if you... <laughs> This is not the best example. I, I've been <laughs> look. I've been teaching a class called Matter and Materials, and I've taught. Uh-huh, I've taught. Tell us more. And I've taught. Th- I've taught this lesson about like how drywall helps. You know, sure. helps yeah. helps right. basically make that kind of you know wood rectangle rigid, and that's an important and good thing. Mm-hmm. I've taught that lesson very eloquently many times. Mm-hmm. Take my word for it. <laughs> now what what I've got today on a Saturday afternoon candy is, is candy dots. Candy dots. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you know the drywall is kind of keeping keeping those those two by fours rigid that square square shaped and so um, that's I'm, I'm actually surprised that doesn't happen more often though because yeah. so many contractors their attitude is kind of like oh it'll be fine we right. can just take this apart and most of the time it is because you yeah. can cut a hole into a brick wall and it'll and mostly until you right. get the lintel in there it'll be okay and. Uh, but you know, once in a while, yeah. windy night, or yeah. you just take out too much, and, right. and this is why it's a good idea. Where if you're really taking a lot of walls out of a wood frame building, even if you know it's not the structural walls, you should still apply some bracing, mm. um, or consult an architect. Yeah, right. Mm. Or, but as Craig mentioned, we're not in charge of means and methods. Mm. Yeah, but we could. Uh, we are responsible for saying what walls should be demolished. That's true. This assumes that an architect was used in this particular example. Yeah, which, uh, mm. do you think people do work without permits and architects, Jamie? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do think that happens, Craig. Yeah. I do. Lawbreakers in this neighborhood. Yeah. I can't believe it. This, this isn't called permits on air, you know. <laughs> uh, here's an interesting one. Why has the front porch been disappearing as a fundamental part of home design? Oh, I think that is an interesting question. Yeah. 
I, from a sociological point of view, that's actually a really fascinating question because in so many cities, the front porch was really where people mm. hung out and existed with their neighbors. But it was largely, I think, because there was no air conditioning. Yeah. And so people wanted to get out of their houses and there was a covered space. So if it was hot but wet, you could still be under it. Right. And it served as kind of a way to interact with other human beings. I wonder if the rise of air conditioning and the tendency as a result, you don't really need that space. And if you enwrap that space into the building, you actually get more space. Mm. Yeah. You know, that that would be my guess, I guess. I, I think that's a pretty educated and spot on guess. Yeah. Though really, Chicago does not have until recently a history of really there are front stoops, but not that yes. many front porches. There's a lot of back ducks. Yeah. But only recently do we get these like uh, tacky condos that all have big covered front balconies on them right like the kind of typical four flat that you see now or six flat yeah and those are so so ugly um those are really like based on building plans from warmer areas too like that's really popular in like miami or Mm -hmm. i think it's a really strange thing to have in a city which has more clouds than london and you know a lot of howling snow i I don't know if that's the greatest idea yeah but anyway, I mean, the stoop, even the stoops are disappearing, though. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. Now, it's in, in a lot of modern buildings, it's just steps up, or even if not that. Mm. Yeah. But I guess if you didn't have that front porch um, on my building, theoretically, you could have taken that square footage and gone right up to the sidewalk, and it would have mm-hmm. increased your interior living space, too. Yeah. Wow. I think that's right. It, it's really hard for me to think about this question at the scale that it is asked, which is all buildings and all front porches, right? Yeah. Because, like, I think, like, what, what, yes, what cities have, which don't, in yeah. which cities does it remain in style? Um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to think about it at the scale. So I would challenge that listener to come back and refine their question <laughs> with a little more specificity, yeah. and we can respond. Yeah. More. Next question. <laughs> Why can't septic tanks be connected to public sewers? Because the public sewer is very far away. Well, yeah. they also work in very different ways. Yeah. Yes. Right, but the you usually have a septic tank because right. there is no public sewer available. Yeah. Right. Um yes. Well, and it's and this is also interestingly why in in some cities why it's not safe to drink the water is because the like what used to be the suburbs had septic tanks, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and and uh, the way that a septic tank works, basically, well, the waste goes into the tank and then it goes into a series of pipes that sort of have holes in the in, in the pipe that that, that spread out a drain, over a field. It's a drain field. Yeah, it's a drain field. Yeah, and drain so field. so the idea is that there's a kind of tank that holds the waste and uh, and kind of the, the it it slowly leaches out into mm-hmm. the earth and returns to the earth in a way that's not going to like poison you. Well, the solid waste stays in the tank. The solid waste has to be pumped out right. of a septic. Every septic has to be maintained and pumped. But there's also bacteria and enzymes that are put into the tank just like you would do to start or use compost. Mm-hmm. And then there's a swale. It's a, it's a giant swale. So your liquid uh, waste, which is basically uraic acid, which will break down under sunlight and in dirt fairly quickly, and all those minerals will leach in. That's actually – that's why the grass is always greener over the septic tank. Thank you, Mr. Mabobek. <laughs> um, it, it, it will go out. But the other reason is because sewer systems – yeah, septic is put in when you don't have a – sewer system nearby but as you mentioned problems can result from 
some people, even in Cook County and even in the Chicago city limits, do have septic. They mm -hmm. should be connected to the sewers, but they're not. And yeah. it's because the systems work differently. A septic works on spilling that over a large area to get it aerated and oxygenated, whereas the sewage system just takes it away and hopefully takes it to a water treatment plant, though, as we've discussed in other shows, doesn't always do that in yeah. this, this particular city. Hopefully it takes it to St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, right. it, I hope it's St. Louis's problem. That's what I always say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there, there's nothing to say that if a sewer system did go by, like it would probably be the responsible thing to do to decommission your septic tank. And, and uh, there might be reasons why you wouldn't want to do it. But all you really would need to do is redirect your drain pipe to the sewer, uh, and away from the septic tank. Your well, sewer pipe, Kiefer. Sorry, sorry. Yes, of course. Well, yeah. What did I say? You said drain pipe. Okay. Yeah. yeah yes and no. Yes. It's actually a little more complex than that. Um, and I only, I only know this because in my parents' very small town in Connecticut, they're on septic. I see. And in the neighboring town, they started having residential sewer. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare because some if you can't get everybody on the sewer system, it's not cost-effective to build it. But if you don't get everybody on the sewer system and then some of those septic systems start screwing up, then you can't drink the water. Yeah, right. And that's the problem, especially if you're in a very wet area with a lot of rivers yeah. and a lot of wetlands. Right. Well, and then and that's what I was going to say. You know, like uh, in in the suburbs of Buenos Aires, for instance, right? right? Like the they had septic tanks, and then uh, the kind of city grew and grew and grew, and then right. they were overlapping, and because they use, you know, like clay pipes and things for the water supply, that kind right. of. Gets, it leeches. Gets, gets mixed up. Yeah. Not what you like to see. No, 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 no. No bueno. <laughs> yeah. No, no bueno. Uh, one last question, perhaps. Sure. Uh, let's, let's do this one. Um, <laughs> is insulating a crawl space worth it? <laughs> what are you trying to do in that crawl space? What are you? What are you trying to do in your crawl spaces, Jamie? It seems like you have some ideas about things that could happen in crawl spaces. I, I do Usually, that's like where I like to put the body parts. I, you want to make sure it's insulated for sound, not necessarily for heat. Uh, <laughs> Did I just say that over there? Yeah, right. Um, who, wasn't there a Chicagoan who actually John Wayne Gacy or something? Was it in the crawl space? Or was or, it Jeffrey Dahmer? I thought there was some Chicago in it where they dug out many bodies out of know. his basement. The was, only way to tell is oh. if we listen to Sufjan Stevens songs. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think it was. The, I think you're right. It was John Wayne Gates, but he was. He didn't have it soundproofed. Mm. <laughs> is that why you got caught? Yes. No. Yeah. It's not why you got caught. <laughs> um, probably. I think. Well, I depends on where you're located. You are probably better off to insulate the underside of the floor between the joists than the edge of the crawl space, mm -hmm. unless you have ductwork running through the crawl space, in which case you might want to insulate at the perimeter or yeah. use insulated ducts. But I think insulating between the joists at the floor slab or plane is the same is what they're asking, right? Like, mm. do, should I insulate the crawl space is all for yeah, six sides of that, right? Good question, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you can do either, but it is probably better to leave your crawl space with vents to the outside so that you don't have any moisture problems down yeah. there right. and then just insulate mm -hmm. under the floor. Yeah, as I said, just insulate for sound. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> buildings on air reminding you to insulate for sound. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, insulate for sound. Hold on, there we go. <laughs> there. Oh, yes, wait a minute, Mr.
I mean, I made this outro. We yeah, gotta we got to use it. Well, Ann and Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us back. Catch up with y'all. And uh, that's been an episode of Buildings on Air. And we'll see you in, an, in just a couple weeks as we return to our regular time slot uh, first Saturdays of the month. Here Unless on uh, some, Radio. some Liverpool game comes up or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, in which case, watch our Twitter. Yeah. Watch our Twitter. All right, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Thank This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.